Okay, welcome to the Film Hole Podcast. I'm Trevor. And I'm Raul. I'm a filmmaker. And I'm a scientist. Every week we watch a movie. And then we talk about it. Welcome back to the Film Hole Podcast, where we put films in our holes. Or the other way around, yes. Or the other way around. <laughs> uh... Yeah, so this week we watched The Master, which, for those of you who don't know, is a Paul Thomas Anderson flick, and we actually invited some more people this time around. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, in keeping with, you know, responsible social distancing, we invited a bunch of friends over Zoom to watch the movie sort yeah. of live while we were also watching it. Yeah. It worked out which pretty well. A, it's a lot of fun, actually. Uh there's probably a more technically efficient way to do this, but all we did was everyone was on a Zoom call. We all had our Netflix up at the same time, and we did a three, two, one countdown, and everybody hit play at the same time. And it works out pretty well. It works pretty well, you know? but I'm surprised there's not a more canned way to do this. Uh, when we tried this for our first episode, we you know started the the Skype call between us. And then we started playing the music and in, or the movie and immediately realized that, of course, now we can hear the bleed of the movie we're watching very loudly through our microphone. So immediately realized that wasn't going to work. Right. Right. But I mean, it, it, it works out to where what we're using it for, which is just as a chat room during the movie. Right. Which right. you could argue is maybe a little distracting, but I actually kind of enjoy like the communal feeling of everyone kind of talking about the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just put in a, a snipey comment every once in a while, something funny. Yeah. Keeps it communal. And, it, and I like that, like, it's different from watching a movie like that on Netflix in your home in isolation because you are intentionally synced up with everyone else's playback. Mm -hmm. And so if you were to go up and go use the bathroom or something, you would actually disrupt, like, how, synch how synchronized you were. And so, like, we intentionally didn't pause it at all so it right, felt like right. kind of a real movie experience movie right. watching experience and the chat room kind of feels like the analog of leaning over to your friend and whispering some funny comments right you now mm -hmm. which is uh, a lot of fun yeah so that was great but so we actually um had a nice chat with all of the friends that we invited after we finished the movie to get their feedback mm -hmm. um, and i actually spent some time learning audacity and I create a little montage. Yeah, 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 you did. So yeah, I'd love to share that with you all. This is mainly like a, a demonstration of like Raul's like newfound like audio editing abilities, which like, is a lot of fun. Right. It's you're uh, you're getting really really wrapped up in like the nuances of how fun like audio editing can be, and like the show is just gonna slowly pivot to that like. Look at this new like sound effect that I discovered this week, and just like this show just evolves. <laughs> boing, 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 boing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, we did uh, talk to some people. Raul did some post interviews. We did some interviews on that Skype call right after the movie was over, just to get people's thoughts. So maybe let's go ahead and play that now. Thank you for joining me today. Um, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about the movie we just watched. 
Right. Okay. The master. Uh, the master. Uh, so to get started, just what was your overall impression of this movie? Um, it was pretty confusing um, all throughout. What did you think of the film overall? I thought it was, uh, I'd give it a five and a half out of ten. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah. It felt like a, yeah, it felt like a, just a traditional love story almost. They come together, they go through their trials and tribulations, and then they, you know, they grow apart. Uh, what kind of rating would you give this movie? I would one give to ten it, scale. Um, one to ten. Yeah, let's do one to ten now. Um, five out of ten. Five out of ten. That's pretty close to what Kartek gave it as well. Yeah, I think along those lines, like it talks to me about manipulation and how how people oh, yeah. dates can be manipulated very easily. What do you think of it as like sort of a biopic? of like Scientology. Like, I don't know how familiar you are. Yeah, yeah, no, I was- With uh, Scientology. No, I'm from, I, I actually agree with some of the main tenets of it. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I want to describe to the church, but the principles that they describe are all actually reasonable. Uh, as in like, oh, it's like, be, it's like be kind to other people. Uh-huh. They believe in reincarnation, which I also believe in. That's a big plus. Was there anything you didn't like about the movie? Um, how hard it was to understand what he was saying. Oh, uh, like mumbled. mumbled yeah, he was, he was he mumbled a lot. And I think, yeah, it's part of the character, but to me it was sort of like, do I need to turn closed captioning on right now to understand what's actually going on? Totally. So. It's also really funny, which is like, that's, I, again, I think he doesn't get enough credit for being a, like a funny screenwriter. Um, even his really serious movies like Phantom Thread are just uh, have super funny moments. Um, it seemed a little bit to me like if before the Joker became the Joker, if he just walked onto a boat. <laughs> that's this. You know, I, I, I thought it was weird at first, but it was very well done. Um, overall, I thought it was well done. I thought I think that. I liked the style of all of it. There were like a lot of random cutaways to the ocean and other um, themes throughout, and I think that was interesting. Okay. Anyways, any final thoughts on the movie? Yeah, I mean, never heard of the movie, but definitely it was worth watching. Got it. <laughs> yeah. So, what do you think? I really love how like Kartik like uh, just almost gets to the point of fully endorsing like Scientology. It's like, yeah, it's, all the ideas are pretty good. <laughs> this Scientology has like, what would you consider the main tenets of a religion to be? Like, oh, be nice to people. I think mm-hmm. that's probably a given. I think that's a pretty universal, yeah, like, se- secular rule. Yeah, am- among everyone, but uh. Yeah, I mean, if you want to credit the Church of Scientology with that, that's cool too, I guess. Revolutionary. I mean, before the 1950s, people had no idea. Right, we're supposed to be nice to each other. Why do you think (laughs) we had those two world wars? (laughs) 
I should maybe go on the record and say that Kartik is not a Scientologist or a that we know of. That we know of. Well, yeah, that's our whole thing, right? Is secrecy. That's right. Uh, I really enjoyed what Grace said about the Joker, even though it's like arguably kind of a slam against Paul Thomas Anderson because you're comparing a, a bad movie to a good movie. <laughs> uh, I haven't seen the Joker, but how much of that is just the like walking phoenix's performance that which are usually like pretty universal i love what she said about the mumbling yes <laughs> well a uh mumble actor he is a good mumble out good mumble actor this year's mumble acting award goes to walking phoenix. uh but yeah i think the the similarities are pretty broad but you know similar enough to be noteworthy where it's like it's a man played by walking phoenix uh, in a period piece that's like slowly devolving into a state of devolving into a state of mental disarray as a product of his environment. Um, so that's like kind of the main uh, main plot points of the Joker. But this movie does it obvious or the master does it in a, obviously a lot more effective and professional way. Mm-hmm. What did you think about the overall uh, reaction to the movies? We had a couple of you know, uh, scores that we got back from the audience and they were yeah, relatively on the low side. Your crew was hating on this movie, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. People, people on your side of the fence did not like this movie. Hold them back. Mm-hmm. What's up with that? Um, I don't know. I, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I, I can actually kind of sympathize with that view. I mean, I like a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies and I don't know if this would be really on the top of my list if I were ranking the movies I've seen of his. That's true. Uh, I, I think I would agree with that. I think if we're talking about uh, Paul Thomas Anderson movies, the ones that I've seen, at least the there will be blood would be at the top of that list. Mm. But I do, th- I do think like when you decide I'm going to watch a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, that there is a level of like, this is going to be confusing and requires like multiple viewings. Mm. Like you just kind of have to accept that as part of the part of the agreement right you know and uh kartik and i had a little discussion i didn't include it in the final montage but we were discussing about this concept of watchability yeah i think like kind of like encompasses a lot of a lot of the factors that go into like whether or not you will enjoy a movie are you expecting a really heavy movie that you need to put a lot of thought into or that is overly abstract or do you just want to get to you know next week we're going to watch uh, Con Air, mm-hmm. get some Nicolas Cage action. Yeah, watchability is like a thing that continually comes up in my life, and like I think that I consider myself a very mature movie watcher, knowing that like I can embrace like you know complex indie movies or like, um, for lack of a better term, like intellectual movies, Paul Thomas Anderson stuff, and all the other like kind of visionary directors and i can also watch like nicholas cage's you know fight prisoners on a plane and like enjoy both of those equally yeah and i think that uh people who only subscribe to one or the other are missing out uh because there's like stuff to be enjoyed like on all like all planes of cinema so i think that that's part of like what why i'm enjoying doing this podcast because we're not limiting ourselves to any of that stuff right like it's right. just and, and i you know we're, we're in a good time now that the 
the the door has been blown open on being able to enjoy what was probably considered like old um lowbrow movies now we can come back to them years later and enjoy them for what they are <laughs> instead of like integrate lowbrow what they're not right yeah mm. well let's maybe talk about this movie the master a little bit more so having watched it i don't know like three or three nights ago or something i'm gonna have to recall quite a bit of my memory but I really enjoyed this movie for a number of reasons. Uh, you and I did like a fair amount of like prep work for this. And it should be said that we like neither of us had seen this before, before we watched it right. uh, earlier this week. But uh, we vaguely knew, you know, it was about Scientology, Scientology or, you know, was kind of an indirect reference to Scientology. And so we did a little bit of um, homework prior to watching the movie, which was, uh, watching a couple documentaries we watched going clear separately we watched uh, my scientology movie which you can find on netflix um which are both just kind of general documentaries about uh, scientology and the inner workings of it going clear is i think five years old now um and it's kind of been like the like scientology documentary mm -hmm. for a long time or at least within five years and then my Scientology movie, I think, is uh, somewhat recent. You tell me. Oh, it's not that much more recent. I think it did come out like four years ago. Yeah. Certainly after, you know, going clear. Yeah. I'm going to talk about that for just like a few minutes. And I don't want to take up too much time talking about my Scientology movie. But what a very bizarre documentary that was. Mm -hmm. Uh I think it's because it's just not very upfront about like the tone that it's taking, like with the subject matter of Scientology. Like you kind of have to like sort it out yourself. Uh, and and maybe like my opinion on this is like somewhat skewed because I was fresh off, um, fresh off the heels. What's the expression? Uh, I believe fresh it is. Yeah, fresh off the peels. Peels. Yeah. <laughs> I was uh, fresh off of watching. Uh, going clear which is a pretty standard uh, conspiracy documentary about the inner workings of Scientology and how like screwed up it is on the inside but my Scientology movie is like if uh, John Oliver like was doing some sort of documentary uh, about Scientology for what's his show called it's John Oliver's show called the new one last week tonight the last week tonight um but didn't tell you that like it was for that show so it's kind of like closeted uh i, I feel like it has kind of a closeted humoristic approach to the subject matter at least in comparison to going clear right right it's kind of hard to describe uh my scientology movies format it's kind of a mix between a documentary and a reality tv show Mm -hmm. And that the main objective is not to be necessarily informative. The really mm -hmm. the main objective is to kind of take you through the process of the filmmaker trying to film this movie. Um, mm -hmm. And then just kind of the stuff that happens along the way, but it, it's certainly not a kind of traditional type documentary. Right. Right. And like, if you don't know that going in, it can be kind of a confusing, jarring experience, but it is fun. And I would recommend watching it. Um, 
And if you're into kind of the the whole cult thing, watching cults and like learning how crazy they are, uh, this whole like triple feature is actually kind of a fun experience. If you watch Going Clear, my Scientology movie, and then The Master, uh, it's actually a pretty fun uh, series of things to watch that are all related. That's right. And then afterwards, you can contact your local Dianetics chapter and um, learn more about <laughs> how you can get involved. Local Dianetics chapter. <laughs> Do they even still use that word? Because Dianetics was the name of the book, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what how they refer to that internally. Yeah, maybe that's like me saying like visit your local Bible chapter. It's like not quite your, right. It's almost there in terms of the vocabulary. We're not scholars here. We're not Scientology scholars. No. That seems like an oxymoron. I am a scientist, but I am not a Scientologist. A Scientologist. Though I've always thought the word Scientology is like pretty funny. I think like so. just the yeah, just the linguistic structure of that word like doesn't like it seems like someone who was not a scientist like came up with it and felt like it sounded very sciencey. Well, I think I think back to like when it was created, um, like what science looked like back in that day. I think back in that day, like science was. What day are you referring to? Uh, you know, fifties, late forties. Okay. Like think about the kind of like big scientific achievements from that era you know, nuclear power, nuclear bombs. I think science has probably had this really almost mystic position in society at that point. Okay. Yeah. So like, what do you think about like watching those documentaries before watching the master? How do you think it influenced your, your viewing of the movie? I feel like it made me uh, much more in tune with how this is obviously a, a reference to Scientology, regardless of it, uh, you know, not using the word Scientology and L. Ron Hubbard and um, David Miscavige and all that. It's like obvious, like, and I think that like that's always been the general impression. But like when you have uh, those documentaries sort of resting in your temporary memory as you're watching this movie, you're like easily connect- connecting those dots. Mm. So. Honestly, you know, we were talking about watchability earlier. I feel like if you had watched those documentaries prior to this, that this actually makes this movie a lot more watchable because you're kind of going in with uh, a resting understanding of some of the older practices of Scientology to where, like, you're you're not confused by some of the, the stranger parts of what you see uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix do in this movie. Totally, totally. I certainly think it's a much different experience watching it, um, having had that background versus not. Um, there are plenty of our audience members who hadn't had any of that previous exposure to Scientology material, who I think took it in a much different way. Mm-hmm. In one sense, it might have been actually a little bit distracting. I think I was a little too tunnel visioned on the Scientology aspect of this movie. Yeah. where it could also totally play as just a regular character-driven movie. And I think I wasn't biting too much into that because I kept thinking of the broader picture and the broader context of the movie. Yeah, yeah. I think there's... I think with any Paul Thomas Anderson movie that is in in any way slightly confusing, it deserves like a, a double viewing. 
I think that the backdrop of Scientology helps you kind of understand um, some of those weirder like lore parts of like what you're seeing in this movie, like what auditing is, uh, probably what this cult believes without being explicitly told. But after that, you should go back and watch the movie by itself, uh, just focusing on like what's happening in front of you, mm-hmm. as opposed to the to the larger picture. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But anyways, maybe let's uh, talk about what this movie actually is. Quick summary. Yeah, let's give a little synopsis here. Uh, What's going on in this movie? I'll start it off. The, so the movie takes place in the late 40s or and or early 50s. Do we not get a specific year? Uh, you could probably pull it together from context clues, but... Sure, probably irrelevant. Certainly post-World War II America... We're introduced to the main character played by Walking Phoenix, who is an ex-Marine who um, has been diagnosed with some kind of PTSD. And so we find him, we, we start the movie with him on some kind of military mental health center. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously he's a person with a lot of mental disorders, a lot of pain inside of him. He acts erratically. Um yeah, and it seems to go pretty deep. Um, we're in, we're shown pretty early on that he has this kind of TLC level strange addiction where he makes cocktails of like poisonous uh, poisonous chemicals, but likes to drink them. Uh, really, really bizarre. And I think it's all in service to set up like how disturbed this individual is, and maybe how susceptible he is to like what's about to happen to him. Mm-hmm. It is interesting. Um, and maybe we'll just uh, diverge a little bit here from the synopsis, how unclear the, the fact, the contributing factors to his mental illness are like on the one hand, he is a world war two veteran who has probably seen a lot of intense stuff on top of that. Or on the other hand, he also drinks like jet fuel. Yeah. You can't imagine that's pretty good for you at all. No. I can't imagine that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, I think that the movie is intentionally maybe doing that in saying this guy has a lot of issues. Can't, can't really pin it down to one thing or another. Yeah. Uh, this guy's got a lot of things going on. Uh, but anyways, we kind of catch up to him. We see a little montage, I think, of his, like, a little bit of time in the military um, is diagnosed by some sort of military official is sent back uh, to the real world in some capacity. And where does he, he ends up in another country. I don't remember where, right. I'm, where does he know? I, I don't know. Where are you getting? I'm talking from? about, uh, I'm talking about when um, he allegedly poisons that one guy and then he's chased. Oh no, he's in California. He's in California during that sequence. Okay. Yeah, I don't know why I thought it was. I don't know why I thought it was a, d- a different country. Anyways, accused of poisoning someone. It's likely that he did. Kind of irrelevant. Um, and from that, he kind of becomes a fugitive. And being on the run, he finds himself on a boat. He kind of just like runs away to a marina and hops on a boat that's about to 
about to leave port and sees that as his uh, only escape option from this kind of uh, fugitive state that he's put himself in. Mm -hmm. But it's not just uh, any boat, is it? Right. It's not just any boat. You're going to talk about it. Yeah, I'll talk about it. (laughs) Uh, It's the boat that houses, you know, our, our other main lead of this movie, the L. Ron Hubbard analog played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, and if you're not familiar with like the history of Scientology, um, it actually mirrors this movie pretty well. So like originally when they were starting up, they were heavily influenced by the Marines and like most of their operations were done out of a boat. Is that right, Trevor? Yeah. Are you sure that Marines is correct that he was in the Marines? No, that might like walking Phoenix. Are you thinking maybe thinking of like the Navy? Oh, Walking Phoenix's character. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'm thinking of the Navy. Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of irrelevant, but obviously influenced by some sort of military uh, entity, uh, specifically focused on the nautical and naval parts of it. Yeah. Uh, so L. Ron Hubbard. If you don't know, go watch the documentaries. He's kind of the founder of Scientology. Really eccentric. Um, former. A science fiction writer who somehow also founded a religion but a lot of his kind of early uh, operations took place at sea on a boat and this boat that walking phoenix gets on uh is kind of a direct parallel to that real thing in history mm-hmm. that's right and so it, basically the rest of the movie is just the th- this is the nexus point of the movie where the two main characters meet for the first time and then basically the rest of it is just their relationship you know um philip seymour hoffman trying to indoctrinate or help walking phoenix uh depends on how you think about it into his organization um trying to do some real like hardcore therapy on him to try to make him better because he is a seriously ill man this movie would play a lot differently if walking phoenix was more of a normal person. Yes. You'll be a lot more inclined to think of the Scientology cult or that organization as more, um, you know, more bad, more evil. Mm-hmm. But as it stands, it's like you kind of, you know, ultimately they really do good to this person walking Phoenix's character. I would say it depends on how you look at it, but certainly the intentions I would say are good. Right. Right. So to your point, Freddie Quell's, I think, as disturbed as Lancaster Dodd, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, is delusional. So they're kind of like two extremes, like kind of colliding at this particular chapter in their lives. And that's why like both parties have good intentions for the other, but are ultimately like creating a, a bad situation overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, you know, what we were talking about earlier with, you know, the backdrop of Scientology and having some information about that, I, for me, it really, really helps understanding Lancaster Dodd as a character, like, going forward, because he, like, if you are strictly using him as a surrogate for L. Ron Hubbard, believes that he kind of has the keys to the universe, the keys to making... Uh, all mental health problems go away, solving all of like human conflict, like everything 
under the the guidance of what he believes in Scientology uh, is solvable, right? Right. And as an extension to that, his social position within this group of his, I mean, he's essentially like a Messiah God-like figure. Everybody reveres him and looks up to him. Um, that's the kind of relationship that he has with the rest of the group. Yeah. And uh, that's why the introduction of Freddy is kind of unique because I think Justin and our one of the things that we said afterwards is probably not in the montage though. He said that Freddie's kind of a blank, a blank slate, which I agree with because uh, he seems to be so uh, disturbed, whether it be PTSD, some sort of mental illness or like the poison that he drinks every day. He's not really functioning on the same wavelength as most people in society. And especially not the people that are currently in that cult that he stumbles upon. Right. Which we should and say so, are like very posh, very high class people. Yeah. I mean, if not, if not for their involvement in the cult, like more or less kind of like normal, like modern people who have just kind of drank the Kool-Aid. Whereas like Freddie is almost childlike in his sort of wonderment and just a uh, universal acceptance of what he's being told about this group. Mm hmm. He's certainly, like, as far as, like, social caste goes, almost one step above that of a hobo, right? He's a drifter. He goes from place to place to work. So the fact that he finds himself with this group of uh, seemingly wealthy people with, you know, with means is kind of interesting that he would be um, embraced by this, this group of people, this community, which is what ends up happening. But essentially the movie after he arrives on the boat... It covers the duration of Freddie and Lancaster's relationship and the ebbs and flows of it. Um, and a lot of it is Lancaster, I, I would say, performing like social experiments on Freddie alone as a as a guinea pig to demonstrate to the rest of the cult, like how legitimate his beliefs are. Mm -hmm. uh, and so like, it's difficult to tell I think throughout this movie, like what is actually uh, real and not. And I think that, you know, part of what you're getting into when you're going into a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, I guess, but like specifically with Freddie, you know, it's being told from his perspective. And I think you said that he, at one point he's kind of an unreliable narrator or unreliable storyteller. Right. If we're right. truly relying on Freddy's perspective because he's so uh, um, disturbed. That's right. That's right. And um, sorry, I, lo I lost the thread here. <laughs> <laughs> cool, 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 cool. cool. Uh, so one of the most emblematic scenes that demonstrates this like confusing perspective is this party scene that happens inside of a house where uh, Lancaster is hanging out with a bunch of his followers and he kind of bursts into song in a very like early uh, 20th century kind of way. Uh, it seems very like, I don't know, it reminded me of like Prohibition for some reason. It's just like people like stomping, uh, stomping their feet and clapping. It seems like kind of old timey. Uh, I don't know, it reminds me of like 
Beverly Hillbillies for some reason. I don't get That's it. That's how they did. Yeah. Pre pre like big stereos and stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyways, Lancaster starts singing. Um, people are kind of dancing. And you know, it's there's a, a cut back to Freddie that shows that you're kind of watching from his perspective and he's just kind of off in a corner observing this party going on. And then it cuts back to the party scene and everybody's still dancing and singing, but now like almost all uh I believe maybe maybe all of the women are completely naked. Yeah. Now completely in the nude. And the first time I saw this, like I interpreted this as a uh like a like that was really happening. Like they were all suddenly in the nude. And I attribute that to like me recently watching um hereditary and associating nudity like open nudity with cults and like that's just a normal thing and so to me it it almost like did not seem out of the ordinary i'm like oh yes of course Mm -hmm. like no cults and nudity this makes sense but apparently like i overlooked that maybe this is a hallucination i think so and like one of the pieces of evidence for it being a hallucination of um the main character's head is that he is um, like what would you say like a sex very, very sex obsessed kind of person yeah yeah it sure. like plays into his mental disorder that he, he is just like explicitly obsessed with sex all the time so it could be a projection on his part mm-hmm. but at the same time you know not out of the norm for anything a cult might do so i think it's still it's meant to be a little bit ambiguous yeah And I think that like what further drove it home for me, like what I initially interpreted was the scene directly following that, which is Amy Adams, whatever her character's name is, um, and Lancaster Dodd in the bathroom. And she like um, is giving him a hand job, like in front of the mirror, not safe for work, kids shut off the podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we haven't like gotten that far already, but uh, yeah, she, tells him about like putting something about putting it back in his pants and it, it it very clearly seems like she is trying to manipulate him or control him like with sex acts like in the following scene and i took that to mean that she was uh not okay with like the nudity that we just saw and she was like trying to retake like that Lancaster was like participating in some sort of like sex sexual thing himself when everyone was nude. Uh, and that, sh- that was her attempt at sort of regaining control over him and not letting him uh, express himself sexually mm-hmm. in that way. So like while my, I, I think that my initial interpretation of that whole sequence was wrong. Like I have evidence to back it all up. <laughs> It can be played both ways, right? I mean, like, what do we actually think happened? If you look at it as Walking Phoenix hallucinating the nudity in the previous scene, uh, that implies that there are no overtly sexual undertones to this cult. Um, so where does that leave you with Philip Seymour Hoffman's horniness in the bathroom scene? Uh, one explanation that I, you know, I saw some evidence for on the internet is that there's uh a basically a homosexual tendency within him towards walking phoenix's character that like one of the theories is that he um is very attracted to walking phoenix's basically animalistic properties that's something that he really likes yeah i could see that 
why do you suppose that like the animal part of him is so attractive maybe that's can of worms i don't want to open actually <laughs> i don't know it's hard to say um you know there there are hints to like scientologists uh perspective like on humans in relation to the west rest of the natural world you know uh-huh. they basically think humans are um above the rest of nature you know everybody everything else is animals but humans are special that they have souls that live through you know infinity billions of years um so i don't know it's hard to say but it, it must play through that lens of his own religion that makes him mm-hmm. attracted to walking phoenix or not attracted to but just very interested in yeah i think lancaster sees uh freddy as like a like a specimen like a very interesting uh kind of pre-human human if that makes sense like he believes in past lives and he believes in this uh kind of genetic uh genetic passing down of like certain primal instincts and that like freddy is an above average example of those things and so i think that uh at the very least he's fascinated with freddy for that reason and i'm sure if lancaster has like some homosexuality tendencies that maybe that very easily translates into attraction yeah i think that sounds right okay now let's talk about some favorite scenes yeah there's plenty of them in this movie uh some funny some serious uh i want to talk about something funny because i'm uh i'm kind of sick of how serious this movie is forcing me to be but (laughs) one of my favorite things in this movie is there's a scene where there's like a a party that's being hosted by some affluent member of um lancaster's posse and so there's like a mixture of people there there's like believers and non-believers there including someone who's played by some actor who I I just know from Silicon Valley playing Peter Gregory. I don't know the actor's name. Um, but he gets into a little like tussle with uh, Lancaster about, you know, what his beliefs are or, or whatever, or like how he can know certain things. And uh, I love that scene. Lancaster gets so like, defensive and uses in my opinion some very like loony reasoning to defend himself he uh says like have you ever been to the pyramids and the guy's like of course like not or he hasn't and so he has no and Lancaster's like but of course we know they are they are there because learned men have told us so or something and it mm. just it sounds like the like 50s early 50s late 40s version of like arguing on the internet like using these really like obscure like uh metaphors and examples to like get your point across which is also bullshit yeah yeah <laughs> it's like because learned men have told us there and like so obviously like i know what i'm, what I'm talking about and like, completely in line with internet argumentation is the the finale of that scene where uh, Lancaster just calls the man a, a what did he call him a pig fucker <laughs> I don't remember that just that, immediately that sounds right like he's being challenged for like 30 seconds mm-hmm. and he puts up a little bit of a defense and immediately just goes to like you big fucker <laughs> yeah and I, I even like the like because he, he can't defend himself no. I think was that scene was trying to tell us like he tried a little bit but ultimately 
um, unless you approach him with completely uh, sympathetic point of view, like you believe him, mm-hmm. um, everything he says just kind of crumbles away. Right. And even like his physical stance, like during that sequence, I found really funny. It, I feel like if I had to argue with an internet troll, like in real life, that like that's how they would stand. It's sort of like, like arms folded across each other, like one hand over the top of the other, like kind of resting like on his waist. Yeah. <laughs> like what you would imagine like an intellectual looks like when they're when they're arguing about something. Right, right. But it seems for whatever reason, like so artificial in that scene. And it, that has to be on purpose. Mm-hmm. What's another one of your favorite scenes? I, all my scenes are just like the like like the very like overtly sexual stuff like the scene from the beginning where he's um in the beginning where Freddie is at that veterans mental hospital retreat thing they're on the beach with all these other ex-military people mm-hmm. um and they make a sand sculpture of a woman laying down on the beach mm-hmm and then Freddie is just like doing sexual things to this sand sculpture and then like immediately goes like masturbate to the ocean. Yeah. Which I is, is trying to like tell you a couple of things about Freddie. Like this is like the first scene. Mm-hmm. Um, it's trying to tell you a little bit of like where his mind is at, the fact that he is um, so sexually inclined, uh, really sexually obsessed. Um, the fact that he seems to uh, subvert all social norms which yeah. I'm pretty sure across the board tell you to not masturbate in public. <laughs> yeah. The last time I checked, but he's just, <laughs> uh-huh. he had the need to see to kind of like go off to the, to, to the, to the break of the ocean mm-hmm. and kind of do it into the ocean. Right. Uh, but still. You're, you're just, you're just uh, highlighting that scene because it's funny. What it's a scene. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> what a visual. That is a visual, not probably uh, dissimilar from what you would see in a modern day public masturbation situation, which just goes to show you that, you know, people don't change like the people in the 50s weren't as weren't any better than we are. Right. Nope. Just as just as crazy and weird as we are. Yep. Serial masturbators. So that was a pretty good scene. Um <laughs> What else comes to mind? Well, it this might be a good time to point out really quickly that just like the movie doesn't really like not a lot happens in it by by the time it's over. We're kind of like right back where we started. Right. Um, right. Which, you know, is uh, par for the course in Paul Thomas Anderson movies. So probably not too unexpected. Uh, but I suppose... Uh, one scene that I that we discussed a little bit after the movie, which is kind of another what's actually going on here, uh, is what Kartik talked about. That's not in our montage, but he says that the scene in the the movie theater where Freddie runs away briefly, uh, disappears from the cult for an episode, and there's a scene with him inside of a movie theater, and he gets a phone call from Lancaster. And Lancaster's essentially telling him to come back and that he misses him. Apparently, according to Wikipedia, that that scene is actually a dream. And that definitely did not land with me the first time that I saw that. It didn't even land with me after 
repeated uh, reviewings of that scene. Even upon close analysis of that scene, like seconds by seconds, we actually did this like remotely where we watched that portion of it on Netflix and we're just like repeating that like 15 second segment. So just to to describe what the scene is, like he receives a phone call, has a conversation with Lancaster telling him to go see him again. And then the next shot is one of him uh, asleep in the movie theater. And I think that both of us, like maybe I said this, uh, I just assumed that like time had advanced probably, or just like, whatever the cutting technique was there, it did not register in my mind as some sort of hallucination or a dream. However, I suppose that that is uh, a good uh, parallel to what we were just talking about earlier with that like orgy scene where it's like the, the cutting alone, like the editing style alone does not make it very obvious that any sort of, uh, perspective change or like real like reality shift is happening mm-hmm. it's extremely subtle and so maybe the point is that like weird it's not actually a dream or like it's, it's not interpreted that it's a dream immediately and so i don't want to get too uh heady into like film stuff here because i am not qualified um but i do know that one thing that paul thomas anderson likes to do in his movies is very judicious use of cuts. So I think there's a really good uh, Nerd Writer episode on There Will Be Blood. Shout out Nerd Writer. Yeah, shout out to Nerd Writer. <laughs> Doing God's work. Yeah, great way um, of putting it. But the breakdown is is just, he's looking at There Will Be Blood and he like broke down the number of scenes, um, divided it by the length of the movie and just like revealed that cuts are actually very few and far between and there will be blood. Mm-hmm. They're used very uh, strategically. And so I think in looking at a, at a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, a cut like that in the movie theater actually probably is pretty revealing. Yeah. So in the context of his work, I actually like think that that was him very subtly trying to uh, tell us that the phone call was not as it seems. Right. I think, yeah, I think most people would probably interpret it the way that I did initially, which is to think that it's just a cut and not signifying of anything Mm -hmm. other than that. Right. Yeah. I think that it, what we're experiencing as a result of not giving enough credit to, uh, PTA. Yeah. PTA's utilization of cuts and his intentionality in like smaller details like that so egg on our face ego my ego but at the same time like the 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 question of whether or not that scene was dreamed or not doesn't seem to really have any implications to the rest of the movie like regardless of whether you think it's real or not i suppose maybe like i don't remember the scene like verbatim but i recall like when he shows back up at the Scientology house or where wherever it is that he went, England, like uh-huh. whatever whatever operation they have going on in England, that right. they seem kind of surprised by his arrival. You think so? Yeah, I mean, at least like the receptionist was like, "Is he expecting you? Who are you?" And that then, like, yeah, and then Lancaster kind of gave him this ultimatum, 
of like you can stay here or you can like leave forever or, or something like that, which seems a little bit less sympathetic than what we heard on the phone in the previous scene. So exactly, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so I think much like the scene of the orgy that may or may not have been, these sequences of scenes can be seen in two completely different ways that are compatible with the movie that we're watching. Yeah. Yeah. Cause his, he really wasn't what, when he did go to London, it wasn't really a warm reception now, was it? No, he came back. Um, Amy Adams character, um, Lancaster's wife, absolutely cold shouldered him was like, you shouldn't be here. You're a lost cause. Mm hmm. That's not the reception of somebody that has invited you to be there. Right. Exactly. So that, that is evidence towards the it being a dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It all adds up, really, when you think about it. And I guess that leads us really to the, the last scene of the movie that I wanted to talk about, which is, um, so obviously Freddy didn't like accept the ultimatum didn't join the church it seems because the very last scene is him going to a bar um getting drunk and picking up a bar girl so this this very last scene where he finds himself um in bed having sex with this bar girl that he picked up i think he's still in london i'm not really sure but Mm -hmm. while they're having sex he does the same kind of like psychological procedure he attempts he attempts to do like an audit like what the scientologists call like an audit right right essentially woman He's doing the um, th- this exercise that happened earlier in the movie where it's, you know, looking in my eyes, if you blink, we start over. And so the, the exercise is just to ask the patient a series of questions and they have to maintain eye contact and they have to not close their eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you think of this like final scene? What does this tell you? My initial like reaction to this whole thing was... And maybe this is because of how fresh Scientology was on my brain that there's this thing like within the documentary, like both documentaries refer to called uh, squirreling, where like when you try to broadcast or adopt like certain practices of Scientology, like without the expressed permission or endorsement of Scientology. So sort of like off off brand Scientology is what they're talking about. Hmm. And so like that's kind of like what ran through my mind like during the scene because he's doing this audit thing with this woman trying to elicit like the same sort of psychological responses that he experienced but he's doing it so poorly that it's like not it doesn't mean anything like within the context of their relationship. Yeah, that's that's and, and I don't think that he understands like why it's not working. Like, yeah, him. yeah, you're totally right. That's that's very interesting. Mm. Yeah, because she's like not paying attention at all. No, it's just like poor execution. And so uh, not that that has really anything to do with what the movie is trying to communicate to me or the plot at large. But that was just the thing I paid attention to most that just like this thing that he's trying to do isn't working. Uh, so what it made me think of is, you know, they go back to what this movie is about, you know, in one sense, it's the origin story of this religion that is still here to this day. 
And, and so what features do you need from a new religion for it to be basically self-replicating and self-sustaining? You, you need the tenets of your religion to be passed down from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. So this scene to me kind of like told me if the whole movie was just uh, the odyssey of Lancaster trying to instill Scientology into Freddy, what this scene told me is that ultimately it worked. That even though he formally kind of rejected the church um, in the final scene between Lancaster and Freddy, yeah, even after all of that, he's still pushing the doctrine a little bit. So it's stuck. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there's no deny. There's no denying that like what Freddy experienced was legitimate. Like he legitimately experienced some sort of like. I don't know, sh- like shift in consciousness because of whatever experiments a Lancaster was doing on him. Sure, uh, psychological uh, breakers. Right. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, like, I think all of that stuff and like you talk about Scientology the same way. It's like all of that stuff can be explained through the lens of regular like psychology. Right. But like right. Scientologists view it as something more primal or supernatural or something else entirely. And hmm. Uh, so, like, whatever Freddie was experiencing was legitimate, and so I think that he, in on some level, still believes in that stuff. Without, because I mean, like, I think part of the reason that Scientology works, like, within its historical context, is because of the uh, lack of psychological or what am I trying to say here? I think I get um, what you're trying to say. It's like the science of like psychology has advanced a lot and we have right. like we have terminology and like ways of explaining a lot of this stuff but at the time it's like you were just eliciting uh certain psychological reactions from people that like given the proper delusional pretense could seem like supernatural or some sort of different breakthrough. Right. And I think under a limited perspective of that science that you would have a similar reaction to what Freddy is experiencing. So I think what you're saying is that the Scientology has real tools, psychological tools that can really like make breakthroughs for people. Mm-hmm. And that at this time, they're basically, you know, leveraging those, you know, legitimate ways of uh, like their auditing exercises don't seem unlike um, uh, what's it called? This kind of therapy where I'm forgetting the name of it, but there's a therapy now that's become a little bit popular where essentially you just try to confront your fears. It's called like immersion therapy or something like that. Sure. But the idea is to be just like very intense therapy sessions where you're going face to face with the things that are like holding you back psychologically. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is an organization that has maybe in a sense been practicing that for a long time. And subjectively, like on an individual level, this results in very transformative experiences, which um wouldn't take too much egging to ascribe to a religious right uh kind of motivation so much for not getting heady jesus christ (laughs) (laughs) all right how would you score this movie man out of one to ten one to ten based on our old uh, scoring system yeah I mean, I'd give it uh, an amphibious 
six out of ten. <laughs> Amphibious. That's good. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's just an adjective. It doesn't really need to be anything else. Let's see. What's like a Scientology adjective? This is a um, subversive. What is suppressive? Suppressive. Suppressive. Yeah, yeah. This is a suppressive uh, eight out of ten for me. Yeah, I actually really like this movie. I know like a lot of our viewing partners like responded negatively to this movie, but maybe I'm biased towards Paul Thomas Anderson. But like, I love this movie. Yeah, I think I'm somewhere between you and the the rest of the audience here. I mean, I love the guy and I love his movies and I certainly enjoyed this one, but uh, maybe it just wasn't as captivating as it could have been for me. Yeah, I get that. It's it's no there will be blood. Yeah, I get that. Cool. Well, that's been our episode this week about the master. Tune in next week for Con Air. Con Air, starring Nicolas Cage, uh, John Malkovich, and some other people. Oh, uh, John Cusack is in that movie also. Oh, really? He's a U.S. Marshal. So we're thinking of taking it kind of in the opposite direction from this previous week. We're going... (laughs) We don't discriminate here at the film hole. We're we're watching all kinds of movies here. Yep, yep. Indie darlings and just like mid-aughts big blockbuster trash. (laughs) (laughs) What? yeah precisely my film hold does not discriminate precisely cool well thanks a lot folks and we'll catch you next time thanks for listening this week our music is by w look them up at underscore w on instagram that's underscore the word double and two u's editing this week was done by raul flores wherever you're listening give us a good rating tweet us at at film pod on twitter thanks again see you next week i'm gonna switch over to my zoom mic Okay, I got one more thing to say. Okay. So Karcha handed me $2 last week. Um, so he is a sponsor now. <laughs> okay. So I just got to give him a quick one. Cool. Um, and thank you to our sponsor, Kartik, who handed me $2 out of his wallet last week. Let's give a quick shout out, though, to like our the people who uh, viewed this movie with us, endured endured the viewing party with us. So that's... yeah. That's uh, Grace Fawcett, my girlfriend. Um, that's Justin Wheatley, friend of mine. Uh, Chris Maddie, another friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and my girlfriend, uh, Stacy Kim, who has no option but to watch the movies that I put on. Right. Um, and good friend of mine, Kartik, who graciously came over in person. Uh-huh. Appreciate all of their opinions and contributions to the conversation. And they'll probably part of, be part of the conversation next week, too. Also, quick shout out to Brady Goodman, who hooked us up with the uh, hosting services for the podcast. So cool. Well, we'll see you next week. And here's me switching to the Zoom mic.